Guide to Politics. I am Liz Philippos, and I'm here to offer an expanded perspective into this moment in our collective political lives so that we come to a deeper awareness of our capacity to transform and transcend the present paradigm as agents of transformation. Each week, I talk with creative leaders about their spiritual understanding of the current political moment the possibilities for the well-being of our planetary lives and the life of the planet itself. They inspire us to know that the personal is political and the political is spiritual. There are tremendous possibilities for transformation when we really come to know this. My guest today is Dr. Dan Siegel. Dan is a pioneering researcher in the field of neuroscience and mental health. He has written many books that translate scientific research about the mind into accessible, practical knowledge that contributes to parenting, interpersonal relationships, empathy, compassion, purpose, and service to humanity. He is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine, a founding co-director of the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center, and the executive director of the Mindsight Institute. He's the author of Brainstorm and Mindsight, the co-author of Parenting from the Inside Out and the Whole Brain Child and the author of a new book called Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence, which offers a groundbreaking, scientifically verifiable practice to evolve us beyond a sense of separation, to know our connection to all of life in our everyday lived experience. The implications for activism, community, and transformation are enormous and potentially change everything. It's such an honor and pleasure to talk with Dr. Dan Siegel today. Given that you are a pioneer in the field of mental health and for many decades have been studying the mind, the brain, and pioneering new ways of approaching mental health, I would love to start with just your take on where we are in this current moment, uh, maybe a, a little bit of a collective diagnosis that you could offer us? Yes. You know, it's a really interesting question, Liz. Mental health, spirituality, politics, why do, they, why do they go together? From a scientific point of view, we need to begin with the notion that we human beings are actually extremely collaborative, connecting social creatures. We have a, a number of things we've inherited through our DNA that make the human journey shaped in a certain way by these genetic factors. We have in-group, out-group distinctions that have allowed us to survive. So, you know, who's in our clan, who's not in our clan, became important for whether you lived or died. So that became a survival basis that we categorize things as like us or not like us. Even young children, as young as 18 months of, of age, they start doing this. The idea of a self in a body and a self 
as people like me, you know, my family I can trust, my cave members I can trust, is a part of our human legacy. And then as we go forward, if the self is defined as only by your body, you're just people like you, you start being very protective of that individual identity, even if the collective individuality, like only people who are on my soccer team or, you know, who like my kind of cereal or whatever it is. From an individual point of view in the brain, even the circuitry of awareness, of being conscious, is actually very much related to our social circuitry. And this is a fascinating finding. So even something as personal as, you know, self-understanding and self-knowledge and self-awareness actually are, are really socially constructed experiences we have. And this is where you then go from that sort of genetic process to then a cultural process, because we have something called cultural evolution. And you can have contemporary culture define the self as quite individualized and separate and who you are is, you know, just this hundred years you get to live in a body. And when you look at like that, it helps us understand a lot of what's going on politically these days has to do with the way the self is defined in a very narrow way. Narrow, both in terms of space, like it's your body or people have bodies like you, mm -hmm. or even in terms of time, like it's just about the century that you're alive. And so people start doing things with immediacy there and not thinking about in the long run and the way people treat people who are not like them. We, we've come to a place of deep interconnection on our planet that's in some ways more intense now than ever before, but we have less compassionate understanding of going beyond these separations, how you can go from genetic issues that shape the brain, cultural issues that can be shaped with intention by our sense of how we define the self and who we are. Part of what you're saying is that there's a scientific or physical reality of us, and then there's a cultural evolution. And the part that you're talking about in-group, out-group relations are something that gets culturally developed. Are you saying that, or are you saying that that's part of our genetic structure too? Well, yeah, no, it's a really good question. It looks like it's part of our genetic inheritance, probably in our primate history, not just human history. Probably it's been around for about 50 million years. People who are in your in-group, you want to really treat nicely, and people in your out-group, you want to treat harshly and get them away from you. Sadly, we, we are prone to this, but the good news is we can rise above it. Right. When we're on automatic pilot, it's mm. a tendency, especially when we're threatened. What you're speaking to then is the importance of being aware because we're not trapped by our genetics. We don't have to follow the impulse. Well, exactly. And, you know, the reason I wrote this book, Aware, was to give people a tool to say exactly what you're saying, Liz. You know, to say, you actually are born into a body. Okay, let's accept that. You're going to have all sorts of feelings like these in-group, out-group distinctions that your genetically shaped in part brain, you know, is going to have. That's fine. But the great news is we have consciousness and we have culture. And those two things can actually be cultivated in a way that goes beyond these ancient divisive ways that we comport ourselves. Mm -hmm. We can actually wake up to a new way of living and I think it's actually an incredibly exciting time to be here as a human being, you know, because we can actually use this amazing science to inform in many ways what wisdom traditions have been teaching for a long time, 
that we can use consciousness, we can become aware. And when you become aware, you actually change the way you behave. Mm. Even in a five-year-old, we're just teaching a fundamental way of approaching consciousness, actually change the way he could be in his life. So picture this, a teacher, she has a culture where she teaches this practice, which I write about, called the Wheel of Awareness. And the Wheel of Awareness is very, very simple. It just says consciousness is comprised of the experience of being aware or knowing. Like if I say, good morning, Liz. And you have the knowing or the awareness of that. And you have the word good morning, which is not the same as the awareness, but it's what you're aware of. So in this simple drawing of a wheel, in the hub of the wheel, we place the knowing of awareness. And on the rim, we place anything that could be known, like the word good morning that you hear with sound. She teaches all her kids this in the classroom, this wheel of awareness that lets them know, look, you're aware with the hub. The thing you're aware of is on the rim, and there's all sorts of things that can be on your rim. And you can be aware of that from your hub. That's what she teaches them. Well, a boy named Billy was kicked out of one school for beating up a child on the yard, transferred to another school, entered Miss Smith's class, and she teaches all the kids the wheel of awareness. So Billy learned it. On the second day that he was there, she writes me an email about this. He comes in during recess. He says, Mrs. Smith, Mrs. Smith, I need to take a break. Joey took my block. I'm about to hit him, but I don't want to be lost on my rim. I got to get back to my hub. Hmm. And so he was able to distinguish the impulse to hit. That was his automatic default mode. And when he could distinguish the knowing of the hub from the knowns like impulses to hit on the rim, it gave him the opportunity to pause and then to choose other options of how to be. And this makes all the difference. It's the basis of emotional intelligence, social intelligence. It's the basis of ethical behavior. It's the basis of how we can change our culture so that instead of just being on automatic pilot and doing these very destructive things at times, we can actually cultivate the positive aspect of our potential. What comes to me as I'm listening to you and thinking about just reactiveness, I know when I'm reactive, I'm not in a position to actually solve a complex problem. Exactly. In fact, I wrote a book with Tina Payne Bryson called The Yes Brain, which is all for parents to do. But in the book Aware, you learn how to actually master this yes brain approach in a deep way for your life, which is basically, you know, you have two states. You have a reactive state where you feel threatened and you go into fight mode, flee mode freeze, where you tighten up your muscles, or faint, where you collapse, those four Fs of the reactive state when you're threatened. But then you have, instead of that reactive state, where you can induce this by saying no really harshly several times, in contrast to that, there's another brain state called the receptive state, which you can induce by saying yes very sweetly many times. And this receptive state is exactly like you're saying. Then you're open, you can have much more complex thinking. You're connecting to other people, you're connecting to other ideas, you're flexible in how you approach things. That's a receptive state. We know these brain states exist. We know they're quite different, and we know how you can shift from one to the other. Some people are just more sensitive to things, and they enter this threat state just more quickly, more deeply, in a prolonged way. It's harder for them to get out of it. You can't really reason with someone in a reactive state. 
they're busy in a very ancient system of self-survival. And it's that reactive state that makes for a reinforcement of this view that the self is separate rather than our self, who we really are, is part of a, a web of interconnected living systems on this planet, not just human beings, but all living beings. And when you open up the self like that, then you're very receptive to realizing, okay, I'm a part of not just what happens here in this hundred years I get to live in this body, but I'm a part of, you know, what's going to happen in generations to come. And you have the long term in mind because mm -hmm. you realize you are part of a living, breathing organism called life on earth. And you're one part of it. And you feel this incredible gratitude for that. You feel compassion for all sorts of living beings who may not have the same configuration that you do in religion or whatever. So you feel this connectivity, and the studies show it actually creates more health. There's this beautiful way where you feel a deep sense of purpose in life, and purpose is about doing things in service of others. In the book Aware, I talk about a fundamental process every individual can take so they can take on pervasive leadership to realize that, yes, we're all potentially prone to being reactive, sure, but let's get bigger than that. You know, let's actually rise above that with our human capacity to realize our way that we can expand our sense of awareness and actually become stronger. And I think human culture is going to be able to at least potentially move itself in a very positive direction. Mm -hmm. Honoring that people do get reactive and get into these fight flee modes, but saying, hey, we know that we're all human. We could do that. Let's actually get bigger than that. Anyone can act like an ancient reptile, but let's actually try to move ourselves into a much more thoughtful human way of being where we realize, as my dear friend John O'Donohue used to say, the duty of privilege is absolute integrity. And to really have integrity in this world, we want to literally become respectful of all life, mm -hmm. human and otherwise on this planet. Your new book, Aware, the Science and Practice of Presence, that's coming out August 21st. That's right. If you take us through that field of interpersonal neurobiology and practice of presence, what you're referring to as the wheel of awareness, drawing from our wholeness rather than just one part of our structure, yeah? Exactly. In Aware, you know, I go through the deep scientific analysis of this, but, you know, that wholeness that you're talking about is exactly what our calling is now as a humanity is to say, okay, we're born into a body. Okay, we have these more primitive ways of being, but we are so much more than this ancient genetic in-group, out-group, survive-only mentality. We are so much more than that. You know, we're going to feel where we combine all the sciences together into one framework. And so in the professional series that I edit, I've edited now over 70 textbooks from other writers in that field. The fun part of that is then I can write books based on tens of thousands of scientific articles, but make these books very practical, very accessible, but based on science. In my own journey, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with people in my clinical practice to try out the idea that integration, the linking of differentiated parts the basis of health and consciousness seems to be needed for intentional change, whether it's in, like we're talking about in culture, but also in communities and classrooms and homes, or even in your individual life, consciousness is needed for change. So then I said, well, what if you integrated, that is, identify the differentiated parts and link them, consciousness? 
So at a minimum, you can put in the hub of that wheel the knowing that we talked about, the being aware. And on the rim, you put the known, and you have a spoke of attention that you systematically move around the rim. Now, for Billy, the five-year-old, that was just a drawing. For older folks, even in their adolescence, you can do it as a reflective practice. And as you do this, you're building on the three research-established pillars, it turns out, that science has shown are helpful for creating amazing changes. You know, it improves your cardiovascular functioning, lowering your cholesterol, improving your blood pressure and things like that. It reduces inflammation. It reduces the stress response. It actually optimizes your way that you basically maintain and repair the ends of your chromosomes with an enzyme called telomerase. And as the researcher, Alyssa Eppel, said to me after I sent her the book, she said, Dan, Dan, everything you're saying is accurate, but you need to put in one more thing. Has it gone to the printer? And I said, no, it hasn't gone to the printer yet. I said, what do I need to add? She said, you need to say it slows the aging process. When you do these practices, you also integrate the brain. You make the brain actually more coordinated and balanced. It's more nimble and resilient. These practices include focusing attention, so you strengthen the focus of attention, opening up awareness so you can sit in that hub and just be aware of whatever's on the rim, and then cultivating kind intention, a caring, compassionate stance toward your inner life and the life of others. When you do this, amazingly, you develop all these physiological changes of health and your relationships improve, and people actually have this incredible sense of clarity in their lives that they didn't have before. I did this systematically, not only with my patients, but then with my students who are therapists, and then I decided to do it in workshops, and did it systematically with 10,000 people. And then as they would take the microphone and share their experiences, I recorded those things, and then took those findings and said, what actually is the mind? that the wheel of awareness would invite people to have these common experiences all around the planet. And what was absolutely fascinating about it is, but you can actually go beyond the brain science into a deeper analysis of mental life, see this really science-based framework that then fits not only with the wheel of awareness practice, but with the process of personal growth, family life, the deepest questions of the meaning of life, spirituality, our sense of connection to something larger than our just our personal lives in ways that has been absolutely fascinating to invite people to learn about this stuff, which you learn in the book, and then to actually reflect on their own experience doing the Wheel of Awareness practice, because people can do it from our website as an audio thing, and then actually see where we might want to go individually with your life, where you might want to go, where we might want to go as a culture. And it gives you the tools, the very practical tools that cost nothing, of actually expanding awareness so that you can become more resilient. If, if you know awareness was like a cup of water, if life dishes out challenges that are like a tablespoon of salt, you know, if your cup is like the size of an espresso cup, you put the salt in that water, Liz, what's it like to drink that? Not that good. Not that good. <laughs> but if we could expand your container to be like 100 gallons, then you would be able to put that tablespoon of salt in now the 100-gallon container of that hub, if you will, the experience of being aware, and we stir it up, and then what does the water taste like? You can't taste the salt. Exactly. <laughs> That's what the Wheel of Awareness practice does. It expands your container of awareness so that you still have the same life challenges, the, still, the things that really are 
tough sometimes, and everyone's life is filled with challenges. But now you are prepared with an expanded hub of your wheel, this expanded capacity to be aware, and it changes everything. You're far more spacious. Exactly. Mm. I did that guided meditation last night on your website, the Wheel of Awareness. I just felt so much energy move. Everyone should try that. Isn't that amazing? I'm I'm so glad you did that. You know, the, the whole basis of the wheel comes from scientific reasoning of integration creates that coherence. And then why not then integrate consciousness because consciousness is needed for change. The whole notion of the wheel of awareness is a science-inspired, practical application that builds on these two very simple statements. Integration is well-being, consciousness needed for change, integrate consciousness. When you started the Mindsight Institute, I don't think there were a lot of casual conversations about mindfulness happening, but it seems like there's a trend. (laughs) You know, there's two things. I didn't bring the mindfulness word to the field. The Mindsight word is, yes, a word I created years ago, back in the 1980s. But Mindsight is empathy, insight, and integration. And that's something I'd been working on for years before I even knew there was a term called mindfulness. Mm. Uh, I kind of got into the mindfulness world by accident in many ways. So mindset had been around long before I knew there was a term called mindfulness. And of course, mindfulness has been around for thousands of years in contemplative practices, but I'm trained as a scientist. When the term mindfulness uh, introduced to me, it was when I used it by accident in a parenting book I wrote with Mary Hartzell called Parenting from the Inside Out. And we needed a word to say, what is it like when you're conscientious, intentional, caring, and awake? Let's say be mindful. So we said, okay, it's important to be mindful as a parent. Fine, you know, conscientious, intentional, caring, and awake. So people said, when are you going to teach us to meditate? And neither Mary nor I was a meditator. It was so interesting because everyone would say, when are you going to teach us to meditate? And we go, what are you talking about meditating? Because we were already saying really weird things like self-understanding is the most important thing for a parent. And it was a natural thing, but the field just didn't have much science behind it at that time. Uh And uh, then by accident, if life has accidents, I don't know, but by accident, I was put on a panel with this guy, John Kabat-Zinn, who I didn't know about. He's a leader in the field of bringing ancient practices of mindfulness into the medical setting. It was fascinating to actually meet him. And for me, what was really interesting was that my field, I'm an attachment researcher, had shown secure attachment leads to certain outcomes. John, John Kabat-Zinn and Richie Davidson had shown that mindfulness-based stress reduction training of mindfulness actually leads to basically the identical outcome. Mm, wow. So why would sitting on a cushion doing individual like meditative practice and a parent-child loving attuned relationship lead to the same thing? And so that just, for me, made me incredibly curious from a scientific point of view, a clinical point of view, a personal point of view, to enter this field of mindfulness back, you know, around 2005, 2006, so it's not so long ago. So I came at it not from a contemplative practice, but from kind of a scientific interpersonal neurobiology view of attachment. And I think the way they're related, by the way, is that in mindfulness, you become internally attuned to what's really going on. And in secu- with secure attachment, you have, you're interpersonally attuned to what's really going on. Mm. And so attunement is what's shared in common. And for our view, you know, the mind is both within and between. So it was a very natural way to then embrace mindfulness 
into the larger frame of interpersonal neurobiology because for us it's a way of creating states of integration internally with mindfulness that you create interpersonally with secure attachment. <laughs> and in, in the book Aware, what was, what, what was so much fun writing it, and I am so excited to see when people start reading it, what it's like for them, because it's a very practical guide that says, okay, here is how you yourself can do the Wheel of Awareness practice, and then here are some five individuals we'll check out in the beginning. Then let's dive deeply into what your experience is. Then in the next part it says, hey, that was your experience. Keep on doing the wheel, and let's walk through a little journey of what the science of consciousness reveals, and that, that's the first part of part two. And then it takes you on the next step, which is, all right, you've done the brain stuff. That's pretty straightforward, actually. Now let's go into the energy stuff, and let's see what energy really is if the mind is emerging from it, how we might understand consciousness in a new way. And then it, it takes you then on a journey back to those five people with this new framework of mind as emerging from energy, in the fourth part, you say, okay, now with all this stuff you've been learning and experiencing and taking in what feels right to you, let's see how you can use this to create well-being in your life. So I'm, I'm just thrilled to see what this approach is like for people. And like Liz, when you tell me you did the wheel last night and it had a big effect on you, it, it's so interesting because you meditate and it did and there are people who've never meditated before, and it does. And it's just so so nice that a science-constructed integration of consciousness, reflective practice, meditation just means training the mind, so you're training the mind to become more integrated, can be accessible for people who are experienced, and it's fun and challenging and takes you somewhere really nice. And for people who've never meditated before, the same thing is true. It's a really exciting moment, i got to say to see how people soak it in and how it can support their journey in life. If you're offering something that solves so many problems, personal, cultural, social, political, this is a great time. It's fertile ground. We did a celebration of John O'Donoghue. John O'Donoghue is how you say in Ireland. We did a celebration of his life in Ireland. He passed, sadly, body died 10 years ago. I say that because, you know, his teachings and his mind in that way, you know, continue on and on. I did the Wheel of Awareness practice there in Ireland, and there were a lot of people of the Catholic faith. John had been a Catholic priest, but also mystics because John had been Irish mystic. It was so beautiful to just have deep spiritual practitioners as well as scientists, to have everyone get together. As John himself said, you know, this is a marriage that was never dissolved. The science, Mm. the, the... close, deep, empirical study of reality and spirituality, the human journey of finding meaning and connection in life, never need to be separated. That's what AWARE is really all about. It's to start with the reader's own individual journey, opening them up to finding this uh, healthier way of living, but also a way of finding more meaning and connection in life. Mm-hmm. Really exciting. Anything else that you want to share right now before we share your website? This is an amazing moment to be a human being. It's an amazing moment for all of us. There's a beautiful term called pervasive leadership. We are all like candles. You know, when we allow our flame to light up other people's wicks, we can actually light this world up in a way with this new kind of awareness that has this wonderful potential to create more kindness, more compassion in the world. And more understanding, inner understanding and understanding of our deep interconnection Mm. with one another in life on this 
beautiful, beautiful planet. So I, I'm really excited that we're on this journey together, and thank you for having me. Ah, what a pleasure to talk to you. And, you know, I just teared up when you talked about our uh, interconnection and greater kindness. What could be more important? Where can people find out more about you, and where can they find this book, Aware? Sure. So the book, you can come to our website. You'll get some fun stuff. There's also things on our website, drdansiegel.com, which is D-R-D-A-N-S-I-E-G-E-L, drdansiegel.com. There you'll find also the audio recordings where you can do a guided practice. Thank you so much, Dr. Dan Siegel. Thank you so much for being with us. You've been listening to A Spiritual Guide to Politics here on KPFK Radio. My name is Liz Filippos. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad you joined us. Until next time, 